Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're experiencing a crisis of delusion among Christians in which evangelicals are dying uh, due to conspiracy theories. Conspiracies concerning the vaccine, ideas of notions of freedom in which they're insisting on the freedom to endanger themselves and their neighbors by not wearing masks. 27% of evangelicals have said they believe that QAnon was accurate or mostly accurate. QAnon revolves around the baseless belief that former President Donald Trump is fighting a secret war against a global cabal of democratic elites who are Satan-worshipping, cannibalistic pedophiles. Another survey conducted in October 2020, as is at Denison University, actually put the numbers up. They looked at a representative of about 1,700 people, and they actually found that 50% of white evangelical Christians either agreed or strongly agreed with QAnon. Surveys show that 49% of evangelicals thought Antifa was responsible for the attack on the Capitol. And in this scenario, they say, oh, it was Antifa people dressed up as Trump supporters attacking the Capitol. As one report put it, this trend to believe conspiracies seems to be baked into the religion. Some 24% of white evangelicals said in June they wouldn't be vaccinated. This is down, actually, I think the numbers are decreasing. And according to a study from the Public Religion Research Institute, the anti-vax position has been incorporated into uh, a kind of conspiratorial, anti-science political view that has been described as a Christian nationalism. And so what might we attribute the fact that evangelicals Christians seem to be easily manipulated by lies, falsehoods, which are actually proving deadly. They're killing themselves and their neighbors. And I'm going to suggest that there is a brand of Christianity which openly embraces a lie in place of the truth. And this Calvinist form of the faith, which characterizes evangelical Christianity, I believe, has literally confused the lie of sin with salvation. It has a distorted view of God, it has a distorted notion of the atonement, and it takes what is described as the sickness as if it is the cure. And this brings us to the passage, Romans 7 14 to 21. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, 
but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I think Paul is describing the spiritual equivalent of dying with COVID-19. The patient he is describing is in the throes of death. And yet, like some of those hospitalized and dying, part of the sickness is to believe the lie that this thing is not deadly. And even the symptoms of death are denied. I think Paul is describing this is what sin looks like. John Calvin may be typical, or maybe his view comes to typify, those who read this passage as primarily a description of the regenerate or saved. So that he would say Paul's description of his struggle with sin, his incapacity to carry out what he knows to be right, his alienation within himself, and his existence and identity in what he calls the body of death or the body of sin. And he'll, at the end of this, in 724, he says, wretched man that I am, John Calvin says, this is the Christian life. As Calvin explains, this conflict of which the apostle speaks does not exist in man before he is renewed by the Spirit of God. He says the Christian is one who is made aware of his sin condition and he mainly hopes for a future rescue when the flesh is gotten rid of. But meanwhile, he is made to agonize over his sin to feel in his redemption the acuteness of sin's effect. In other words, if we put it in terms of COVID, to recognize the symptoms and to live through them that that's the cure. And it is a refusal to take the true cure. For Calvin, final rescue is focused on deliverance from the future wrath of God. And he says this is provoked by the breaking of the law, which he says contains his righteous decree. And so in this understanding, Christ died to meet the requirements of the law. And his death is not directly connected to necessity or explanation of an immediate reconstituting of the human subject such that he is rid of the sin principle. That is, in Calvinism, you never get rid of the sin principle. You never quit agonizing. But actually, this is the, precisely the opposite of Paul's point. And my argument is that as depicted in Romans, but also elsewhere in the New Testament, Christ did not die primarily to meet a requirement of the law, 
but to displace a deception which involved the law and he died to expose this deception which kills and the subject which is described in the next chapter and which we'll come to in the conclusion in chapter 8 he's the one who's taken the cure the person in chapter 7 has not been cured of his problem in chapter 8 the person is no longer controlled by sin and its deception and so look at 8 2 in which Paul explains for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death the law of sin and death is what he just described chapter 7 he says all of that you're now free of and chapter 7 is the problem and chapter 8 is describing how Christ sets us free from that law this means that it is not the law which explains Christ's death but it is sin as it is oriented to the law and the point of his death is not simply to re remove a future wrath you know that's working due to the law or according to the law but it's to save us from a sin problem the sin problem that Paul is describing and certainly this pertains to the future so the question the key question is sin's deception resolved through the law that's what Calvin says or is it confounded or mixed in with the law and these two readings then resolve around the concept actually up in verse 11 of the concept of deception for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me I believe that Paul depicts sin's deception in regard to the law as key to understanding the human predicament Calvin in his Romans commentary passes over sin's deception in regard to the law and he presumes precisely the opposite of what Paul is saying he presumes that the law exposes the deception quoting Calvin through the light which the law throws on the turpitude of sin that sin is revealed this doesn't explain why there is the possibility that Paul is talking about here of confusing sin and the law he says is the law sin nor does it explain why the law is the means of death and deception Paul says explicitly verse 10 the very commandment that promised life proved death to me Paul is describing how sin distorts the law in its relation to the sinful self the command which promised life serves as an explanation for the content of the deception just to say here that other commentators Calvin is kind of alone James Dunn maintains that life is not to be had in the law Gunther Bortman thinks this positing of life directly in the law is the deception which sin always works Calvin maintains a separation between the deception and the law and he seems to miss what I think the majority of commentators 
like Dunn and Bortman are pointing to, sin distorts the law such that we imagine that it contains life and righteousness in itself. As Calvin puts it, he makes no reference to the deception. He says, quote, the commandment shows to us a way of life in the righteousness of God. For Calvin, the obstacle contained with sin is just corruption. But Calvin presumes this corruption is simply the breaking of the law, which results in death, and it does not refer to an attempt to gain life through the law, where avoiding death is the motivating factor. He says, quote, it is incidental that the law inflicts on us a deadly wound, as when an incurable disease is more exasperated by a healing remedy. The law then, in Calvin's explanation, is the cure, is part of the cure, and it's not intertwined with sin and death in the human imagination. This leaves corruption kind of a mystery. This is actually Augustinian, and Calvin is following Augustine here. While Paul's point seems to be just the opposite, to explain how sin works through the law by means of a deception. And so Calvin renders the deception, he says, oh, that's just what led me out of the way of the law. Rather than the law being the occasion for sin, which is what Paul is saying, Calvin explains the verse as saying, quote, as we begin then only to perceive our erroneous course when the Lord loudly reproves us through the law. He's separating the erroneous course and the law, preserving the law from its entanglement with the deception. And he re renders the verse as making precisely the opposite point. And I'm using Calvin because you understand the majority of our Christian brothers and sisters by which we're surrounded are following John Calvin. Paul says rightly that we are led out of the way, Calvin says, when sin is made evident by the law. Paul is not saying sin is made evident by the law. He's saying sin uses the law to obscure its sinfulness, holding out the promise of life in the face of death. And so Calvin's explanation makes nonsense of Paul's explanation as why would sin being made evident be the occasion for sin. I think Calvin means that sin was already present prior to the law, but the giving of the law exposed what was already present. That's logical, but it's not what Paul's saying. And it doesn't fit with Paul's argument. Paul is not explaining an easy thing here. In fact, I think what Calvin misses, and I think what commentators miss in Romans chapter 7 when they think Paul is describing his Christian life is actually Paul has gone back to Genesis and he's depicting in chapter 7 the I you know I did not know what it was to covet apart from the command thou shalt not covet Paul is referencing Genesis chapter 3 and this explains who this I is it's Adam it's every man 
And in this understanding, there is not a time prior to the prohibition. The prohibition, you know, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you have free access to the tree of life, that was simultaneous with the creation of the man and the woman. And so the logical sequence of chapter 7, verses 10 to 11, is that of Genesis 3. The prohibition posed the possibility of life. You know, you have access to the tree of life. Sin, or the serpent, deceived me. You won't die, you'll be like gods, the serpent says. And then Paul says, I die. In Genesis it says, the day that you eat of it, you will die. The prohibition or law is itself the indicator. The opportunity, you know, it's the base of operations is the word Paul is using here. That something more, this is in the serpent's understanding, there is life beyond God and it's available through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this alternative. It points out the opportunity for life and knowledge. You won't die in Genesis chapter 3, 4 indicates actually God is the liar. He's lied to you about this whole thing. And his prohibition not to eat, it's actually a cover. He's holding out on you. He's warding you away from enjoying his divine privileges. And so the serpent's lie in chapter 3, verse 4, negates death, but the negation is under a, a, another negation. You won't die, but you'll have life and life more abundantly. You'll be like God. And so the broken law, what Paul calls the law of sin and death, is actually what's there in Genesis. The serpent, which Paul here, he doesn't reference the serpent, he just says sin deceived me. But the idea here is breaking the law or manipulating the law. You won't die, you'll be like God, you know, in the words of the serpent. But if you manipulate it, you make the law your own, or a law that you establish, this will provide access to life without resort to God, without resort to the tree of life. The tree of life is simply representative of God's presence. And so the prohibition was only life-giving in the sense that it kept open access to God's life. That is, if you follow this prohibition, you have free access to the tree of life. But the law, the prohibition, is not itself life-giving. The perception, you know, this is 710, this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. What commandment? Oh, he just told us. Now, could this be referring to the 10 commandments? It could be, and probably is. It's the same circumstance in Paul's explanation. But in both instances, the promise of life and the law is skewed by sin so as to remove the necessity of God as the giver of life. This is Adam's and Eve's problem, but this is the Jewish misunderstanding. According to Dunn, to still imagine after sin that life is in the law reflects a common Jewish misconception. And of course, I think it's Calvin's misconception. 
I think it's evangelicalism's misconception. It's the lie of the serpent. Dunn asked, does Paul mean that the commandment was intended to bring life, to lead to life? That is a life not yet possessed? Such a reading, he says, does not fit with Paul's understanding of the law as stated elsewhere, but in fact reflects a misreading of Paul. And it's precisely the reading that Paul is repudiating. And what is not to be missed, he concludes, is the implied sharp reverse to and rebuttal of the traditional Jewish assumption that the law commandment promised life or promoted life. The correct nuance is to understand that the law keeps one in a life-giving relationship with God, that life is in God. It's this relationship to God, not with the law, or with the negative prohibition in Genesis that is the true source of life. And yet Calvin concludes that we do nothing but wander from the right course until the law shows us the way of living rightly. In Calvinism, all you need is the law. Paul's depiction of how the law is distorted through sin, seeming to hold out life, and in its deception producing death, it's just passed over by Calvin. So he works with kind of a blunt notion of sin that simply contrasts flesh and spirit and equates being in the flesh or body as an incapacity to keep the law. In his explanation, all of human life, in fact, stands outside of the law, stands outside of the spirit. Everybody is transgressive, even the little baby that's just conceived. In Paul's version, and this is Ernst Caseman, the lie is embraced under the presumption that life is to be had in the law through spiritual achievement. Yet it's not clear how Calvin's depiction of spiritual achievement, even through Christ, is a departure from this lie. At a minimum, John Calvin, American evangelicalism, I'm afraid misses Paul's explanation of the specific function of sin through the law and how this gives rise to a world of deception by which we're now surrounded. The lie of sin is not simply a problem of the heart, it's certainly that, but it poses itself as an alternative way of knowing, an alternative epistemology, a means of gaining life and truth through knowing good and evil. The lie of sin undermines the truth, and this is Paul's earlier argument in chapter 3. He says it even undermines the oracles of God. What advantage in being a Jew, in having the oracles of God? He's not saying the Jews have an advantage because they know what sin is. He's saying they've been duped also. They're also subject to the deceit of sin and they've misread the oracles of God. So what truth can stand the distortion of the lie? This is what Paul is saying. You know, I was deceived. In fact, the eye arises with the deception in Genesis. I ran, I was afraid, I hid, I was naked. This is human identity in the law. 
and the deception. The human project is set upon saving the self, but the deception obscures access to even what a self is, or what the law is, or what sin is. The notion that I have access to myself, or the law, I believe it cannot stand in light of Paul's picture of the delusion. Now what I've just said is to say, here's the bad news, and it's worse than we thought. But of course the good news is that we have salvation. What does Christ save us from? That's the question. Does Christ save us from sin and death? Or in fact, does Christ save us from God? If I'm correct in my understanding of Paul, I believe this also means that Calvin sets aside the work of Christ in defeating the lie of sin. By imagining a transparent access to God through the law and picturing the wretched man, you know, Paul says, wretched man that I am, picturing that as regenerate man, Calvin is conflating Paul's depiction of the problem with the solution. If the majority of commentators are correct, I think it's a majority, in seeing chapter 7 in connection with the portrayal of Adam, then Calvin is confusing the self-torturing sinful mind that is deceived with salvation. This fits with his notion of penal substitution, which reduces the work of the cross to a function within the economy of the law. In a sense, it just goes all the way with the lie that says there is life in the law. And even the life in Christ is reduced to a life in the law. And this seems to miss that the biblical focus is upon salvation from sin and death, not deliverance from God the Father. And so taking into account that the original lie of the serpent was that the law could be manipulated so as to produce life and that God was perceived to be the obstacle to life, Calvin, in passing over the deception, he's just reproduced it. God's the obstacle, the law's the answer. By confusing the problem with the solution, is Calvinism a manifestation of the problem from which Christ saves? That's a question. I'll just let the question hang. Could we extend this embrace of the lie for the truth to the immediate circumstance in which people are being duped to death? They're being lied to until they die. Isn't that always the satanic strategy? You won't die. Or as Isaiah puts it, he describes it as the covenant with death in chapter 28, that the lie is that the scourge of death will not touch you. You have made a pact with Sheol, with the grave, he says. And it's a picture of being invincible or not subject to death due to manipulation of the law. And of course, that can manifest itself in a variety of ways. What is the law? Well, maybe it's your culture or your national identity or your political party or your favorite politician. And you believe they won't lie to you. And that they have the truth or that they have the life. 
but believing the lie always shows itself because it's deadly. We're faced with a deadly virus, but a virus of false religion, I think, is the true virus of false belief that would embrace a deadly lie as if it's the truth. The conspiracy of the serpent is that the law has life, but there is a brand of Christianity that is recommending life in the flesh, the sickness as the cure. But Paul calls this the law of sin and death, which controls those who believe the lie. Christ has the ultimate cure and this is the good news that he brings us in chapter 8 verse 9 he says precisely what Calvin denies however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit so then brethren we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh which is what chapter 7 describes if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. You're dying. Christians should be the ones who can identify the deadly disease and its cure. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you've been cured. You will live. You will have life. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.